Good morning, one and all. Time for us to take uh, our Bibles and turn to the book of James. If you do not have a Bible uh, with you, I encourage you to look around under the, the seats. You will find one. They're there for your use. And encourage you to turn in God's Word to the, to the book of James. In many ways, and I have said this here before, the book of James is a New Testament version of the book of Proverbs. Uh, wisdom is a central theme. And again, in many ways, James is simply building on, elaborating on that great scriptural principle, uh, namely this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And James is taking that truth, and he is running with it, and he is applying it to different spheres and different circumstances uh, of life. And at the end of chapter 3, he provides a concise summary statement, a concise description of this wisdom. And there he declares, beginning in verse 17, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We looked at those verses last Sunday, and we learned three things. You know, having read them and having studied them, I understand, I get it, that true wisdom comes from above. It is a gift from God. It is the result of the new birth. Amen. I get it. I understand it. Secondly, that true wisdom, as James describes it, is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It is Christ-likeness. It's to be like the Lord Jesus. And thirdly, I get it, I understand that the fruit of true wisdom is righteous peacefulness. Verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I understand these three truths. Amen, amen, and amen. Here's my problem. It looks good on paper. It looks really good on paper. But sadly, this does not describe my experience of late. My spouse, perhaps, this is true of you. My spouse and I have been snarling at each other since Tuesday. Maybe longer. Snarling at each other. I'm not sure how it started, but we are annoyed with each other right now. Or perhaps this uh, speaks closer to home. My brother and I haven't spoken since Christmas. There was a disagreement over the handling of our father's estate. It escalated, and uh, some things were said, and there's no taking those things back now. Or perhaps this is a little more applicable to you. 
My neighbor and I haven't communicated in a long while. Not since he yelled at me for allowing my kids to play on his lawn, and I yelled back because he insists on mowing the lawn at 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Or perhaps this applies a little closer to you, to me. My brother in Christ and I have steered clear of each other for close to six months. He said it feels like I'm always judging him. Well, there's a lot to judge. He's just overly sensitive and needs to get over it. Uh, As we reflect on our experiences, and as we reflect on the reality which is our lives, we often discover that they are far removed from what James describes at the end of that third chapter. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Far removed. It begs the question, why? You guessed it. James answers the question. Chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels? Why? What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And so why is it, why is it that our experience, uh, week in, week out, Our relationships in the home, the context of friends, the context of the local church, you apply it wherever you like. Why is it that my experience is so far removed from that bliss that James describes at the end of the third chapter? What causes, why is it that there are quarrels and fights among you? I want to make three observations. Three observations based on what James articulates in the first five verses of chapter four, as we wrestle through the answer to this question, here is the first observation, the thing that we must be clear on and we must get it good. Here it is. We are at war with ourselves. There it is. We are at war with ourselves. Look at the question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Quarrels, fights, Feuds, disputes, conflicts, contentions, divisions, arguments. What causes these things among you? He acknowledges this reality. He answers his question with a question. Is it not this, that your passions, notice his words, the play on words. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What causes these problems among you? In the marriage, 
with the neighbor, with the estranged family member in the local church. What causes these problems among you? And here is what is fascinating. James will not go down this road. He does not answer the question by pointing at circumstances. He does not acknowledge any issues. He doesn't acknowledge any external causes. He doesn't acknowledge any problems. He goes from among you to where? Within you. That's where the problem is. Is it not this, that your passions, the Greek from which we get our English word hedonism, there you have it, that your passions, your disordered affections, your disordered desires are at war within you. What does he mean by these passions? He means lots of things. In the immediate context, we can go back again into the third chapter. We can look at verse 14. We can look again at verse 16. And we discover that what he has primarily before him is what? Selfish ambition. It is love of self. That is the greatest disordered desire of all. Love of self. Selfish ambition, the desire to be uppermost. This is what gives rise to the, this war within. You see, peace with God as Christians, as those who sing those wonderful songs we've already sung this morning, and those words celebrating the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. As Christians, we've tasted of this grace. As Christians, we've been brought into union with the Lord Jesus. As Christians, the Spirit of God has taken hold of us. We've taken hold of Christ through faith. We've become one with Him. We are now God's adopted children, and we revel in this, and we celebrate this, and we celebrate the fact that we are now at peace with God. But you know what the problem is? Peace with God brought us into conflict with other enemies. That's the problem. Many of us don't get it. Peace with God immediately opens up three fronts. War with the devil himself. War with the world. And war with the flesh, ourselves. So hear the words of Galatians 5, 17. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. It's a war raging within. Or as Peter articulates it in 1 Peter 2.11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of the flesh, which wages war, wages war against your soul. We are at war with ourselves. Second observation I want to make is this. We're at war with others. And so look at the second verse. You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. These are parallel statements. And so you have two statements. Take from the first statement, you desire. Take from the second statement, you covet. Expressing the same thing. Now take from the first statement and do not have. Now take from the second statement and cannot obtain. He's saying the same thing. 
And now thirdly, from the first statement, so you murder. And from the second statement, so you fight and quarrel. He is stating the same truth twice using these parallel phrases, and it closely approximates what he has already said in chapter 3. He is driving us back into the 14th verse. He's driving us back into the 16th verse where he has made it clear, look, there is a very close interconnectedness relationship between these three things. The starting point is selfish ambition. The starting point is that innate desire to be uppermost. When that innate desire to be uppermost is crossed, what's the result? Bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy will always vent. It will always find an expression, and that expression, he says in the 16th verse, is what? Disorder and every vile practice. He is simply making the same three points now with these two phrases in the fourth chapter, the second verse. And so selfish ambition, there you have it in the first phrase, you desire. There you have it at the start of the second phrase, you covet And so here's the root cause, here's the starting point, this selfish ambition. And so there's the marriage that's in disarray. There's the marriage that's falling apart. The husband is convinced that the problem is because the wife, his wife no longer has a, a handle on things in the home. The wife is convinced that the real problem is that he has become distant and uncommunicative. And so these are the issues as they're laying them on the table. And undoubtedly, do not misunderstand me. Those are issues that must be addressed in due course. But they are not the cause of the quarreling. That's James' point. What lurks behind the quarreling is what? Passions. Disordered desires. Selfish ambition. And so the friendship is in disarray. The friendship is falling apart. Why? Because one has criticized the other for the way they're raising their children. The other has become impatient with the other individual. Are those problems that must be spoken to? Yes, in due course. But they are not the cause of the quarrel. They're not the cause. What lies behind it are these disordered desires lurking that are crossed that express themselves in bitter jealousy, lead to disorder, this fighting and this quarreling, whereby our passions are at war within us. And so the church is falling apart. Or at least individuals in the church are falling out and there is disarray. Why? Well, one thinks it's because the other is a little too stern, maybe a little too dogmatic, or the opposite extreme, maybe a little too loose. I don't know. And the other is convinced that the other person, their problem is is doctrinal, that they're not crossing all their T's and dotting their I's. Is there something there that must be spoken to? Yes, but if they are quarreling, those things in and of themselves are not the cause of the quarrel. They are not, and we are completely naive if we think they are. There are disordered desires lurking behind the quarrel. Hear this phrase, please. Write it down by the Spirit of God. Burn it upon your brains. Conflicts, conflicts always, always, always arise from cravings. That is all there is to it. That is the biblical testimony. Do we disagree over issues? Yes, we do. 
And these issues must be addressed in a proper way and in due course in the context of a marriage, in the context of friends, in the context of extended family, in the context of the church. But where this has been superseded by quarreling, uh, the issues aren't really the issues. There is something of far greater significance lurking below the surface. That is James' point. Passions are at war within you. Because of selfish ambition, these disordered passions, We attach our desire to be uppermost to things. You and I, we do it all the time. All the time. We attach our desire to be uppermost to things. Wealth, perhaps. Appearance, beauty, looks, perhaps. Ability and capability. Family, our own children. We will bring this into the context of the church and we will attach our, our sense of self-importance and our value in the sight of God and our understanding of our progress in spirituality, even to our spiritual gifts, even to our spiritual ministries, and even to our spiritual causes. We will do this with our understanding of doctrine. We will do this, attach this desire to be uppermost by championing an interest in the church fathers or in the English Puritans. We will do this when it comes to reaching the lost and going door to door. We will do this with social ministries, feeding the poor or whatever. All of these things which are even good and excellent in the sight of God. Because of what is going on within, we will take these things and attach to them our feeling of self-importance, our basic, most basic desire to be uppermost. This is what sets me apart. This is what makes me different. This is what makes me spiritual in the sight of God. And my friend, you must affirm me in these things. You must. You must affirm me in these things. You must agree with my opinions. You must champion my causes. You must support my ministries. You must do these things as I do them. You must see these things as I see them. And these things will become conditions for friendship and fellowship. I will only gather with those who see everything just as I see them. I'll only want to be around those who have crossed their T's and dot their I's and are feeding what I have identified as being of utmost importance because I have attached selfish ambition to it. I expect others. Here's what it is. You write this one down too. I expect others to pay allegiance to my idols. You must pay allegiance to my idols. Selfish ambition, you desire and you covet. What happens? It leads to bitter jealousy. Why? Go back to the first statement in verse 2. And do not have. You desire and you can't get it. Second statement in verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain. And the fruit is bitter jealousy. Oh, you have now come between me and my idol. You are now standing between me and what I have attached my feeling and sense of self-importance, value, self-improvement, my desire to be uppermost to, whatever I have attached it to. And my love for you, if you get between me and my idol, my love for you soon reveals itself that I'm not loving you for Christ's sake, I am only loving you for my sake 
and my love will quickly morph into contempt for you. And what happens? I use this phrase advisedly, but I use it biblically. All hell breaks loose. That's what happens. Stephen, you shouldn't talk like that. Go back into chapter 3, verse 6. The tongue is a fire and a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Chapter 4, verse 7, right at the end. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. No, my words are not too harsh. All hell breaks loose. And James describes it as disorder and every vile practice. In the context of chapter 4, verse 2, the third phrase in each sentence, once Selfish ambition is not realized. Bitter jealousy takes root. So you murder. Selfish ambition, you covet. Bitter jealousy cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. It is all hell breaking loose. It is disorder and every vile practice. You see, when people fail to affirm whatever we have attached our desire to be uppermost too. Our idols demand that they be punished. You must be punished. And you must be punished because that is the means I will use to control you and to get you to do what I want and to conform you to me, my idol. And we will do this with our expressions in the home, in our friendships, with the family, and in the church, we will do this with our expressions. We smirk and we snarl. We huff and we puff. We roll our eyes. We shake our heads. We pout and we glare. And if looks could kill, you'd be dead. We do this with our expressions. We do this with our actions. And here we can go in one of two ways. First way, the first thing we can employ is intimidation. We seek to get our own way through angry outbursts. Start yelling, kicking, screaming, tissy fit. Uh, we, we view anger and that outburst of anger as a way of manipulating, a way of bringing someone into conformity with what it is that I want. Or we might go the other way and use isolation. We seek to get our own way by withdrawing, cutting ourselves off. Coldness and aloofness become our weaponry. Actions. And we do it with our words. The tongue is a fire set on fire by hell. Our words become harsh and dismissive, careless and thoughtless, malicious and slanderous, sarcastic and negative. We murmur, we complain, we criticize, we bicker. We use our words to cut and bite. And with our words and with our actions, and with our expressions, we are communicating a clear message. And James states it so pointedly, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying, is it not? I wish you were dead. You desire and do not have, so you murder. It's akin to what the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where he equivocates what? Uh, the murder with angry outbursts and cursing of a brother. 
you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. There's the answer to the question back at the start of the chapter. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Oh, there is a war within, and therefore there is a war with others. Third observation is this. We're at war with God. We're at war with God. Right at the end of verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Climb back up through the verses with me. Again, right to the end of verse 2, where James makes the point that these passions, this war within, this desire for selfish ambition, spawning bitter jealousy, leading to this disorder and every vile practice, what does it do? It stifles prayers. You do not have because you do not ask. No one's praying when they're in that kind of condition of heart. Even if they do pray, what does he say in the third verse? That these passions distort and twist prayer. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so even that which is perhaps one of the most spiritual acts in which we can engage communion with God in prayer uh, becomes twisted and becomes distorted because even in this condition, we end up using prayer itself and God himself as a means to attain our own ends, ends which are rooted in those passions which are at war within us. You think of how this bears out in the immediate context. By way of application, you think of how this, how this comes to fruition in what he is describing here, this relational chaos, right? And so beginning with that selfish ambition, leading to that crossed selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, now culminating in disorder and every vile practice. You desire, do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so these prayers, you're asking wrongly. And so think of how this applies even in that context. And so here I am, I'm praying for a healthy marriage. I'm praying we get things on track, finally. I'm praying for restored and reconciled relationships. I'm praying for closer relationships in church. I'm praying that where there is estrangement, there might be reconciliation. Oh, Lord, hear my prayer, but ignore the fact that I haven't spoken to my brother in months. Lord, hear my prayer. Excuse the fact that I'm belligerent with my employees at work. Hear my prayer, but ignore the fact that I am a raging tyrant in the home. Hear my prayers but ignore the fact that I'm like a wrecking ball in the local church. Hear my prayers, but ignore the fact that I'm not on speaking terms with my neighbor. We ask and do not receive because we pray wrongly to spend it on our passions. What ought to be our expectation in that condition? James tells us back in the first chapter. Look what he says in the seventh verse. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, a man of two souls, unstable. He's basically unstable. He's off kilter. Something is wrong there. He is unstable in all his ways. What is it we are to pray for? He tells us in the first chapter, 
we are to pray for wisdom. What does this wisdom look like? You know it by now. We've memorized it right there at the end of chapter 3. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And so when I find myself in the midst of conflicts in, in the home, the church, whatever, you apply it wherever you want. James is thinking primarily the church, believers, and their, and their interrelationships. When I find myself caught up in quarrels and, and, and fights, and when I'm seeking to make sense of it and finally identify that perhaps my selfish ambition is the, is the root cause and, and it's being expressed in bitter jealousy and I have these idols and I'm actually holding people ransom to my idols until they bow down to them and because they've crossed them, well, then I'm reacting the way I am. Do, do I understand that when it comes to my, my prayers, that makes me a double-minded man? No, here is what I should be praying for. I should be praying that I might be pure that I might be peaceable, that I might be gentle, that I might be open to reason, that I might be full of mercy and good fruits, that I might be impartial and sincere. Dare I ask? I dare. How many of us are stuck in James 4 this morning? And the wheels are spinning. How many of us are stuck? That's you right there those opening verses of James 4. Is it possible? Is it possible that in your prayers, uh, God is not listening because you are a double-minded man, a double-minded woman, and you are not really asking God to address the issue. You're not really praying for God to deal with what's really wrong because when it's all said and done, you don't really want God to deal with the issue which is changing you and it's changing me. That's what we're to pray for. That's what we're to seek after. That's what we're to strive after. A failure to do that. Oh, we're at war with God. Look at what he says at the start of verse four. Look at the consequences. Oh, you adulterous people. If that's what's actually going on in the home, in the neighborhood, in the church, if this is you, please understand you're acting like an adulterer. In effect, what you're saying to God is this, God, I'm not coming home tonight. I'm going to sleep in somebody else's bed. That's what you're saying. Because you are giving full reign to your selfish ambition. You are succumbing to idols in your own life and you are refusing to bow down to the only one who is worthy of worship, the all-sufficient God. And therefore, in that context, I am guilty of spiritual whoredom. It makes me an adulterer. He says, secondly, not only that, it makes you an enemy. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And then look at what he says in the fifth verse, or do you suppose? Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, I think the testimony of Scripture in its entirety, not one particular Scripture necessarily, he, that is God, yearns jealously over the Spirit, that he has made to dwell in us. Spirit, small s, capital S. Lots of debate. I'm not sure it makes a difference when it comes to James' main point, which is simply this. As children of God, you belong to God. Bought, elected. You go back before time. Elected, chosen. Called at a moment in time. 
having been purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus, born again, brought into this family, brought into this kingdom. You belong from beginning to end everything to God. And do you not realize that he jealously yearns or longs for you? James is basically saying that belonging to God, our call, our responsibility is conformity to God. And conformity to God, primarily worship of God. But in the condition he has just described, this individual has revealed himself, herself, to be a worshiper of self and therefore living in enmity with God. Oh, waging war with ourselves, waging war with others, and waging war with God. I've been in a bit of a dark tunnel this past week. And I think I just dragged you by the hand into that dark tunnel with me. This is a dark, dark place, isn't it? Uh, but there is, there is a light at the end of this tunnel. And it just peeks up over the horizon right there at the start of verse 6. I love this word, one of the most important words in the Bible. But, 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 however... There is more to the story. He, who's the he? The he back in the preceding verse, God himself. He gives more grace. He gives more grace. And when we find ourselves in this kind of a condition that James has described in verses 1 through 5, oh, here is the most precious truth we can grab onto. God gives more grace. How does he give more grace? Firstly, he gives more grace by humbling us. Look at the remainder of the verse. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You think of what we read over there in Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when the Word of God does that by the Spirit of God, it is downright painful. And it is a humbling experience. You know, perhaps today, you know, we've been in this tunnel for a couple of Sundays now, haven't we? It's been pretty dark. The past two or three Sundays through this section of the book of James. And it is entirely possible over this past week, two weeks, three weeks, uh, the Spirit of God has taken a surgeon's scalpel to your soul. That's entirely possible. That's not a bad thing. That is a very good thing. That is the grace of God. That is the grace of God humbling us in His presence before Him. And so that's the first way He gives more grace. He gives grace by humbling us before God's Word and showing us what we are. But He does not leave us there. He gives more grace by exalting us in Christ. And so look at what James says in the 10th verse. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And He will. He will exalt you. The lower we get, the lower we climb down in terms of understanding who we are, the clearer we see the Lord Jesus. The clearer we see the significance of exactly what transpired upon Calvary's cross, 
that when he died upon Calvary's cross, it wasn't just a couple of sins that were imputed to him. Some bad things I've done in life. No, what was reckoned to him, imputed to him, was my very self, my selfish ambition. Sinfulness itself. He became sin for us. And I understand that there upon Calvary's cross, he who was exalted, as I come humbly and gaze upon the cross, I understand that it is my sins that nailed him there and his love that willingly bore those sins. And I understand, oh, I see it far more clear now as I'm humbled by the grace of God before the word of God. I see it so clearly and I feel it so deeply. But now, having believed in the Lord Jesus and having become one with the Lord Jesus, in place of my disordered desires, Christ has given me his ordered desire. But in place of my selfishness, Christ has given me his selflessness. That Christ has imputed to me his life of obedience to the Father's will. Oh yes, I'm humbled by the grace of God as I see myself. And I am exalted by the grace of God as I look upon the Lord Jesus. And there beholding the Lord Jesus, what do I do? I go right back to the first verse and I repent. I repent. I repent of my sin and I plead the help of the Spirit of God to help me in this. And to make me more like the Lord Jesus. And to answer that request, God himself promises it. If any of you lack wisdom, ask for it. And it will be given to him beyond reproach, abundantly. What is this wisdom we're asking for? It is Christ-likeness. It is to be pure. It is to be peaceable. It is to be gentle. It is to be open to reason. It is to be full of mercy and good fruits. It is to be impartial, and it is to be sincere. And it is summarized wonderfully in that little hymn I have shared with you now the past couple of Sundays, and with which I'm going to conclude this Lord's Day. Here it is. O wonder of all wonders, that through thy death for me, my open sins, my secret sins, can all forgiven be. Then melt my heart, O Savior. Bend me. Yea, break me down until I own Thee, Conqueror and Lord and Sovereign Crown. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that You would do this, this very day. We pray that Your Word would become alive to us by the Holy Spirit, that Your desire for us would become our desire, Your longings for us would become our longings, Your yearning, Your jealous yearning for us might become ours. That is greater conformity to your Son, the Lord Jesus. Oh, show us our weaknesses, we pray, however painful it might be. Do not leave us there. Point us Calvary's cross, where your mercy and grace superabound to all who come to Christ in saving faith. This we pray in his precious name. Amen. Amen.